Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. At the very end of David Hume's inquiry concerning human understanding, there is a passage which is some really great rhetoric and has drawn readers' attention for now more than two centuries. It's actually been encapsulated into something that Hume didn't say and didn't call it called Hume's Fork, and a lot of use has been made out of it. This is probably the passage that people best know of Hume. The only other contender would be that reason is and can never be other than the slave of the passions. We're going to put that aside for the moment, although that would be an interesting one to throw into the hopper of Hume's fork, would it not? So Hume doesn't call it Hume's fork. It's only later philosophers interpreting it who are going to do that, sort of like with Anselm's ontological argument, which he doesn't call an ontological argument, and the part that we do call the ontological argument isn't the whole of the argument that he references in the Prologian, but, you know, that's kind of common in the history of ideas. So how does this passage run. Uh, Hume says, when we run over libraries persuaded of these principles, the things that he said already, what havoc must we make? If we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school of metaphysics, for instance, let us ask. Now here's where the actual fork comes up. Does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. So what we're seeing here is that Hume is saying when it comes to books, and it doesn't have to be just books, you know, as he's using these as examples of divinity or school of metaphysics. It could be any book whatsoever. It could be a pamphlet. It could be an argument that's made on a TV show. It could be anything that you like. If it doesn't contain either relations of ideas or experimental reasoning about matters of fact and existence, then it's got no meaning or value whatsoever. And we throw it in the flames because it contains only sophistry and illusion. Now, notice some of the things that Hume is saying here that a lot of people miss out on. He's not saying that if there's any book that contains any portion that is not relation of ideas and matters of fact, it could have like a mixture, right, of relations of ideas, matters of fact, and then other stuff that doesn't fit into either of those. He's not saying throw that out. He might be cool with getting rid of that section. As we're going to see, there's there's some interesting cases that we're going to have to look at in a moment that maybe we don't want to throw these out either, or maybe we do. Notice what else Hume is not saying in this passage or even in this section. He is not using the terms analytic or synthetic as later philosophers from Kant onward, really, when it comes to this matter, have been. He's not using the terms a posteriori and a priori. You might say, wait a second, I saw a reference to a priori in there. Yes, 
But Hume is not calling relations of ideas a priori. He is actually talking about matters of fact and saying that we could come up with a priori reasonings about them. Now, to be fair, Hume does in fact use these terms a priori, a posteriori in other parts of his works. But the identification of relations of ideas and matters of fact, that's something coming about later on. It's not anti-Hume, but it's not contained right there in this section. Now, what do we mean by relations of ideas? Here's where we actually have to be a little bit careful, not just to think we know exactly what Hume means and to buy into what's in effect a slogan, but we need to look at what he's actually telling us here. So we back up a little bit into part three of section 12. He says to me, it seems to me the only objects of the abstract sciences or of demonstration are quantity and number. All attempts to extend this more perfect species of knowledge beyond these bounds are mere sophistry and illusion. So we see that sophistry and illusion coming up there. Hold on to that for a second. He tells us as the component parts of quantity and number are entirely similar, their relations become intricate and involved. Nothing can be more curious as well as useful than to trace their equality or inequality through their different appearances. But as all other ideas are clearly distinct and different from each other, we can never advance further by the, our most utmost scrutiny than to observe this diversity and by an obvious reflection pronounce one thing to be another. So it's because numbers and we could say, you know, maybe even functions, geometric shapes and properties and stuff like that. They're all sort of basically interchangeable. We can actually make progress when it comes to matters of quantity and number that we can't when it comes to other things. And then he says something really interesting. He's talking about other matters. Now, this is where later interpreters influenced by Hume, for example, the logical positivists, think about A.J. Ayer, would say, well, wait a second, you know what else fits into this, whatever we want to call it, you know, analytic statements, relations of ideas, you know, definitions of things. A bachelor is an unmarried male is defining bachelor, saying how we use our language. You know, it's true by virtue of the meanings of the terms. And Hume doesn't want to include that here. He doesn't want to give that the status of mathematics. He's cool with doing that in terms of things like square of hypotenuse equal to the square of the two other sides, right? But he says, to convince us of the proposition that where there is no property, there can be no injustice, coming from Thomas Hobbes, right? It is only necessary to define the terms and explain injustice to be a violation of property. The proposition is indeed nothing but a more imperfect definition. And he says, it's the same case with all those pretended syllogistic reasonings, which may be found in every branch of learning, except the sciences of quantities and number. These sciences of quantity and number may be pronounced the only objects of knowledge and demonstration. Okay, so we've got relations of ideas on one side, which are really just going to be about mathematics, whatever we can mathematize. What about this other side, matters of fact and existence? Very, very important, right? It says, all other inquiries of human beings regard only matter of fact and existence. These are incapable of demonstration. The most you can ever have with these is probability. And the probability can be very, very high, but you can never be 100% certain. Why? He says, whatever is may not be. No negation of a fact can involve a contradiction. The non-existence of any being without exception is as clear and distinct an idea as its existence. 
The proposition which affirms it not to be, however false, is no less conceivable and intelligible than that which affirms it to be. And he says the case is different with the sciences properly so-called, you know, so that we're back in relations of fact now. He's talking about mathematics. So he says the existence of any being can only be proved by arguments from its cause or its effect. These are based entirely on experience. If we reason, now here we see the term a priori show up. If we reason a priori, anything may appear able to produce anything. The falling of a pebble may, for all we know, extinguish the sun or the wish of a man control the planets in their orbit. So whenever we're engaging in sort of a priori, not, you know, connected to experience, reasoning about things that are not number or quantity, we are going out into the realm of imagination of things could be this way or this way, but we don't really know one way or the other. And so he says, it's only experience which teaches us the nature and bounds of cause and effect and enables us to infer the existence of one object from the other. This is the foundation of what he calls moral reasoning, right? Which isn't just about ethics. It's about all the things that could be probable, all the things that we are concerned with in life, which forms the greater part of human knowledge and is the source of all human action and behavior. So relations of ideas, really cool. We can, you know, know them for certain if we can figure out the proofs, but matters of fact are much more important. They're the majority of what we are concerned with. And so he goes on and he tells us that moral reasonings, so matters of fact in existence, are concerning either particular or general facts. And this is where we get to different kinds of disciplines, you could say. All deliberations in life, he says, regard the former, particular. Should I eat this food or should I save it for later? Should I take this job or should I take a different job? Should I, you know, tie my shoes or walk around with my shoelaces untied, right? Those are kind of ordinary life things. He also says, all of history, chronology, geography, interesting, the measure of the earth, and notice what else he says, and astronomy are about particular facts. What about general facts? He says, well, that's politics, natural philosophy, physics, chemistry, etc., where the qualities, causes, and effects of a whole species of objects are inquired into. And you can say, well, why then is astronomy and geography not in there? Well, because they're being understood in terms of like the particularities of the star you're looking at. If we subsume astronomy into physics and we get astrophysics, then we're not so worried about that star as a particular star. We're worried about stars in general right? You see how this works? So these are a number of different sciences. We've got mathematics, geometry, whatever else is in there on that side, logic, you could say. And then we have all the things that are ordinary life and all the other sciences here in matters of fact and existence. What else is there though? He discusses two other important domains. One is divinity or theology, right? He says, as it proves the existence of a deity and the immortality of souls is composed partly of reasonings concerning particular, partly concerning general facts, but it has a foundation in reason insofar as it is supported by experience. Does it actually have a foundation in reason supported by experience? Not according to Hume, not according to what he said prior to that, but there's an out. He says, it's best and most solid foundation is faith and divine revelation, right? Which is not part of the relations of ideas, also not matters of fact and existence. It's something else. 
And so that would be something that maybe if Hume is not going to throw out the whole book, maybe he'd throw out the parts of the book that are concerned with faith, right? He's leaving that as a conclusion for us to draw. What about, and this is very interesting, matters of what he calls morals and criticism. He says, these are not so properly objects of the understanding as of taste and sentiment. Sentiment meaning feeling. Beauty, whether moral or natural, is more, is felt more properly than perceived, or if we reason concerning it and endeavor to fix the standard, we regard a new fact. And what is that new fact? The taste of humankind. So if we look at aesthetics and ethics in terms of what people do in fact think or feel to be good or beautiful, well, we're doing kind of like a sociology of taste at that point. That can be matters of fact. We can't actually say that things are indeed beautiful, like in themselves with, you know, a kind of capital B beauty. All we can say is, well, this is regarded as beautiful by these people. And they, here's the reasons that they give. We can't actually declare ourselves on that, right? So when we run over our libraries, divinity, morals, criticism, those are the ones who might be placed on the chopping block, right? We can also say nonsense books like, you know, Lewis Carroll's stories, you know, where things happen that couldn't, don't really work out perhaps. Maybe that goes into this as well or who knows, right? But Hume's fork is actually a little bit less forceful than people often make it out to be. It's not saying, listen, all you have possibly are relations of ideas ideas or matters of fact and existence. Nothing else can possibly be expressed or exist, right? And it's not saying that because we do have divinity, which is based on faith or morals and criticism based on taste and sentiment, or perhaps some other things that are sophistry and illusion, right? Even sophistry and illusion are something. It's the saying, well, we need to divide things into these and then anything that doesn't contain at least some of this, get rid of it. That's what the statement is actually saying. Many people haven't interpreted this in other ways that go a little bit against Hume's text as we've already talked about. But that is, in effect, if you want to call it Hume's fork, this is the passage that it's coming from and this is the basic idea behind it. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.